Lately at my house, we've been watching a documentary series on Netflix called The Story of Film. It follows the international development of cinema from the very beginning of motion pictures all the way to the modern-day film industry. The first films explored movement itself. They were stories that played out in a single location, consisting of one shot that captured all the action. But then came editing, which opened up a world of options and emphasis when it came to narrative. Shots from different angles provided new information, new viewpoints. Cuts from one scene to another and back could now show what was happening simultaneously in different locations. The advent of editing also brought to cinema storytelling techniques, such as the use of flashbacks to deepen our understanding of a character and to move a plot forward. A somewhat recent example of this storytelling technique is the 2008 movie Seven Pounds, and some of you may have seen it. The main character, Ben, played by Will Smith, donates two lobes of his lung to his brother who's struggling with cancer. Ben then uses his brother's IRS credentials to search out six more people deserving of his help, arranging meetings with each of them under false pretenses so that he can decide whether or not they are worthy of his potential sacrifice. He donates a lobe of his liver to Holly, a child protective services worker. He gives a kidney to George, a hockey coach who is well respected by the children with whom he works. To a sick little boy, Nicholas, he donates bone marrow. Connie, a mother of two with an abusive husband, receives the deed to Ben's beach house so that she can start a new life with her children. So far, Ben has changed the lives of five people, but he plans to change two more. Ezra, a blind piano player, and Emily, a woman with congenital heart disease with whom he inadvertently falls in love. The donation of corneas for Ezra and a heart for Emily will have to come at the expense of his own life. Ben calls 911 to report a suicide, his own, he informs the operator. And it's at this point in the film that there's a flashback that reveals the motivation for all that Ben is doing. The scene cuts to a moment two years earlier when Ben and his fiancée Sarah are riding down a highway. Ben is checking his smartphone and Sarah tells him to put it away. But unfortunately it's too late. Ben has already drifted into oncoming traffic and hits a van. Six people in the van are killed as well as his fiancée Sarah. This flashback both deepens our understanding of the main character and it foreshadows what is to come. We finally understand that Ben has been atoning for that accident throughout the entire movie, a life changed for every life he feels he took. But the flashback is also an image of what's to come. The death of the seven people in the flashback foreshadows Ben's own impending death. Now, cinema may have needed to wait for the technological advance of editing to use flashbacks in this way, but the gospel writer Mark was using the same storytelling device almost 2,000 years before. We see it in today's gospel reading. At first glance, today's gospel story may seem like a bit of forgotten or misplaced information. After all, we haven't heard about John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark for several chapters. Five chapters ago, John the Baptist was out preaching and baptizing. 
Mark's covered a lot of other grounds since then. And in the sixth chapter, Mark has just told us about Jesus sending the twelve disciples out into the world to teach, heal, and preach the need for repentance. Now suddenly it's as if Mark remembers that he should have told us something. It's like, hmm, speaking of John the Baptist. Did I ever tell you how John the Baptist died? What we say, John's dead. We didn't even know he was sick. Then all of a sudden we get this dark, gruesome tale of a birthday party that ends up with John the Baptist's head on a platter. It's been said that the preacher's job is to preach good news. And some texts make that a lot easier than others. Give me a good healing story, a beautiful homily by Jesus on a hillside, an action passage where Jesus becomes dazzling white or walks on water. Give me one of those and I'm good to go. But this morning, instead, we get John the Baptist's head on a platter. Martin Luther once said that sometimes you have to squeeze a passage until it yields good news. And I'll confess that my hands are tired from squeezing. They first got tired three years ago when we had this passage. And I was convinced that this time I would be able to find something that was good news within the gospel passage itself. But where is the good news in this story about Herod, Herodias, Herodias' daughter, and John the Baptist? I think that to glimpse anything more than superficial good news here, we have to remember how Mark uses this story in the overall narrative of his gospel. Yes, he uses it to give us some insight into Herod's thoughts and fears. It develops and deepens the character Herod. But more importantly, John's death foreshadows the death of Jesus. There are so many parallels between the two stories. Herod had previously resisted killing John the Baptist. He was both convicted by John's message and strangely drawn in by it at the same time. Pilate would later show this same reticence when it came to the crucifixion of Jesus, saying, why, what evil has he done? Herodias' hatred of John the Baptist and her scheming to have him killed is matched by the chief priest's hatred of Jesus and their own scheming. After all, both Herodias and the chief priests find their positions threatened. If Herod were to become convinced by John the Baptist that his marriage to Herodias wasn't valid, then what would become of Herodias and the daughter? Would they be tossed aside with no provisions made for their future or for their standing in society? It's understandable that Herodias would be frightened and worried. In a similar way, the chief priests have worked so hard to find a place to stand in this system of Roman oppression. Would it all be jeopardized by some upstart Messiah? But the parallels don't stop there. Both Herod and Pilate place decisive power into the hands of others. Herod into the hands of Herodias' daughter when he promises to give her whatever she asks. Pilate into the hands of the crowd when he asks them whether he should release Jesus or Barabbas. And they both ultimately yield to the pressure of others. There is, it has been said, a double passion narrative in the Gospel of Mark. The passion of John the Baptist foreshadows the passion of Jesus. Now my key point, my key point in all of this 
is that the beheading of John the Baptist was never meant to stand alone as a story. It was always meant to be part of a larger story, part of a greater whole. Herod's birthday banquet, marked by deception, fear, scheming, and exploitation, was intended by Mark to be contrasted with the feeding of the 5,000 that immediately follows it, a meal that celebrates trust, abundance, inclusion, community, and compassion. Herod's birthday banquet, where the daughter serves her mother John's head on a platter, was intended by Mark to be contrasted with the Last Supper, where Jesus gives himself to his followers in the serving of the bread and the wine, a giving in which we partake each and every Sunday. The beheading of John the Baptist was a story always meant to be told in the context of this larger story about Jesus and about another way of being in the world that he makes possible. That's the good news. And it's not just good news for those of us who happen to be preaching today. It is good news for all of us. After all, we all have our own experiences with the world of Herod, Herodias, and John the Baptist. That world is not completely foreign to us. Who among us has never been in Herod's shoes, has never given in to pressure and done other than we ought? Who among us has never been haunted by our conscience? And which one of us can say that we've never experienced the fear and uncertainty that motivated Herodias? And that we've never acted selfishly or sinfully out of that place of fear? And let's face it, most of us know what it is to be an instrument in someone else's plan, just as the daughter was. We might even know what it is to be served up for speaking a prophetic word, and we certainly have all been witnesses to evil as were the guests at Herod's birthday party that night. We have our own John the Baptist stories where good news might be hard to find. But like the beheading of John the Baptist, such stories are not the whole story, and most importantly, they are not the end of the story. In Jesus, we see that there is a story beyond the heartache and tragedy of Herod and Herodias. We see that there is a story beyond our own heartaches and tragedies. David Lose is one of my favorite preachers and writers, and he puts it this way. Jesus came to help us imagine that there is more to this life than we can perceive. Jesus came to offer us not just more life, but abundant life. Jesus came so that there could be a better ending to our stories and the story of the world than we can imagine or construct on our own. And when the temple has just been destroyed, or your marriage is ending, or you've lost your job, or you fear your child will never speak to you again, or you're pretty sure your friend has betrayed you, or you think you may have just screwed up the one relationship that meant something to you, then the possibility of another ending, a good ending, is indeed not just good news, but the best news you can imagine.